Hello, I am Katerina Sliva. I am a partner at Dentons in the Real Estate Group. I am also the head of our Land Use Planning, Municipal and Development Law Group. I help our developer and landowner clients secure zoning and other development approvals for their projects. I am the lead of our Canada Smart Cities Think Tank. I am also your host for the Smart Cities Chat Podcast Series, brought to you by Dentons. This podcast series covers a broad range of topics within the Smart Cities space. Everything from drones, communication, 5G, privacy and related issues, P3s, transportation and smart mobility, sustainable, smart communities, and much, much more. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There you can access our episodes as well as an episode description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now over to our podcast. Today we will be discussing what makes a city smart. We will speak with two leaders from the Sidewalk Labs Keyside project about how they worked together to design Waterfront Toronto in a way that respected the right to privacy. We will begin speaking with Christina Werner. Christina is Vice President of Innovation, Sustainability and Prosperity for Waterfront Toronto, where she is responsible for a variety of strategic initiatives for one of the world's preeminent revitalization initiatives. Christina is active both nationally and internationally in the Intelligent Community Movement and serves on the Board of Directors for the Intelligent Community Forum Foundation and ICF Canada. In 2011, Christina led the bid that resulted in Windsor Essex as one of the top seven communities in the world by the Intelligent Community Forum. In 2013 and 2014, under her stewardship, Waterfront Toronto led the bid to have the City of Toronto recognized in both the Smart 21 and Top 7. In 2014, Toronto was selected as the Intelligent Community of the Year. Welcome, Christina. Also joining us shortly will be Chantelle Bernier. Chantelle Bernier leads Denton's Canadian Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice Group. She is also a member of the firm's Government Affairs and Public Policy Group. Chantelle advises leading-edge national and international companies as they expand into Canada and Europe, enter the e-commerce space, adopt data analytics, and roll out data-based market initiatives. Her clients include ad tech companies, financial institutions, biotech companies, data analytics firms, and government institutions. Welcome to you, Chantal. To start or frame our discussion, uh, I want to pose our Denton's Think Tank Smart Cities definition uh, to Christina. So here it is. Uh, We've defined smart cities as uh, a smart city modernizes digital, physical, and social infrastructure and integrates all essential services for the benefits of its citizens by harnessing advances in sustainable technology to make delivery of these services more efficient, useful, innovative, and equitable. Christina, what are your thoughts on this? Do you have anything to add? Well, you know, Kat, I think that's actually a really wonderful definition of a smart city. Oftentimes you see that these definitions end up very nestled into sort of being technology centric and forgetting the human impact that smart cities have. Um, The Denton's definition is very human centered, which is wonderful. In the waterfront, we actually never referred to smart cities prior to our interaction with Sidewalk Labs. We always looked at things through what we call the intelligent community lens which has kind of six key factors to it, where technology is one of those six factors, and particularly looking at technology as an enabling piece of infrastructure. So more more focused on the broadband connectivity piece, which of course 
we today are seeing now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, how vital that infrastructure is. But then spanning over to thinking about, you know, the knowledge workforce, both how do you create the next generation of jobs, but also how do you make sure that you're preparing sort of the next generation of talent to be able to actually go into those jobs. So we do a lot of work with post-secondary institutions and so on to create an environment where that type of knowledge transfer is occurring. Um, and then looking at innovation writ large. So going beyond just tech innovation and looking at policy innovation, financial model innovation, partnership innovation, to try and sort of optimize that environment that people are living, learning, working and playing in. Um, digital inclusion is a massive part of the work that we're doing in the waterfront to make sure that no one gets left behind. And there's actually some unique things that we do to cross subsidize our affordable housing units from our market units to make sure that everyone gets equitable con um, and equitable access to that connectivity. Sustainability from a triple and even I would argue quadruple bottom line perspective. So economic, social, environmental, and even cultural. And then advocacy, telling our story and being able to share that knowledge that we've learned over the time with other communities across Canada and in fact the world. So I think, you know, broadening that out um, and looking at sort of more the sort of overall human condition of quality of life and then quality of opportunity and access to opportunity is something that's really important. Oftentimes smart cities tend to be focusing in on how technology makes things either less expensive or more efficient, but we always have to make sure that we keep a very people-centered approach on all of these things. So Christina, you were centrally involved with a leading, obviously leading smart cities project that was being really watched worldwide. What are your tech takeaways from, from that experience um, and, and you know how it's unfolding? Great. Um, so you know the, the project that you're referring to, of course, is the Sidewalk Toronto project, which was Waterfront Toronto's um, sort of project that we worked on with an alphabet company, Sidewalk Labs, which is a Google sister company. And we had gone forward to look for what we were referring to as an innovation and funding partner. So really we were looking for not a developer to build an environment, but really somebody to help us think through grand urban challenges. And those are focusing on affordable housing, climate change and adaptation, um, transportation, as well as economic development. Um, so to look at those, those questions very broadly, and then also have the ability to participate from a financial capital perspective. So that project, because of who we selected as our partner, took on a very different lens than perhaps we had even contemplated. Those types of urban challenges, we actually had foreseen that there could be responses from any variety of different sectors. So we had had conversations with tech companies, but also with traditional developers, as well as with venture capital companies, pension funds. Everyone had a slightly different lens of how they would tackle those types of challenges. But with Sidewalk, the conversation very quickly moved into the space of privacy and data governance. And then as it progressed into things like intellectual property and even sort of the human rights element of how technology intersects with basic and fundamental human rights. So one of the biggest things that you, know, you, you learned over that three-year period was the importance of having clear roles and expectations for both the public and private sector partners. And this has been an area that's been quite fascinating and hopefully Chantel will be able to, to join us in terms of the legal and implications around the different actors and the different types of models that smart cities come into life with. Um, you know, we aren't government at Waterfront Toronto, nor was Sidewalk Labs. And so any of the, the proposals that they were bringing forward still would have to have had some sort of interaction with a government agency if it was dealing with government service delivery. But there was a bit of a confusion because we were neither government nor were we private sector. 
Uh, so it was a little bit of a, a strange situation for people to understand how we fit as sort of a middle point on that and then how we would actually manage our partner. That being said, we had very clear framing around you know, how this project would proceed right from the beginning in terms of legal obligations and things like that, consistency with legal frameworks. Um, but there was, at the same time as this project was coming forward, a tremendous move into, if you will, sort of tech lash and concerns over big tech and platform companies that came at us at the exact same moment as just starting off this project. So different types of concerns were being fielded. Um, and part of that, that lack of clarity, I think, in terms of how we were communicating the roles out to the public um, was something that needed to be more sharpened. And I would recommend that anybody embarking on a public-private partnership to develop their, their sort of smart city framework really consider. And that leads into sort of the second big thing that we really learned, and that was around consultation and engagement. And to borrow a bit of a scuba diving analogy around equalizing early and often, you need to consult early and often to make sure that you actually have the legitimate social license to be able to engage in these types of projects. The project itself was not actually conceived of as a smart city project. It was really mm -hmm. conceived of as, as a generation, or sorry, a neighborhood kind of development that would have next generation thinking with or without technology. It could have been around new stormwater management systems, new building materials. Um, but again, because of who the partner was, there was an assumption that the focus would be on technology. And in fact, uh, many times during the consultation, the message that was coming from Sidewalk caused that type of, of confusion in terms of what was going to be delivered and created some blurring between them and their sister company that caused a lot of the fear and concern and apprehension from what I would say would be a small but very vocal group of, of people who are very effective at raising those concerns over time. So again, like the, the clarity on roles and responsibilities cannot be under, understated, nor can that need for consultation on a continuous basis. And we learned so much from listening to the public, not just in terms of what they wanted to see, but just from a society perspective, where were their concerns that you know, we, we needed to be thinking about for this project or any future projects that would involve any degree of, of innovation in the tech space. Uh, so, Christina, why don't we start with a question that involves Chantel, and, and I wanted to um, have an understanding from that behind the scenes perspective, um, and, and you wearing all the different hats you were wearing um, during the, the work that you did with, with Google and on Sidewalk Labs. Uh, you reached out to Chantel at some point in, in that project. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you saw that need to reach out to a privacy lawyer um, and to, to tap into um, her knowledge um, within that space uh, in the context of the project? Absolutely. I mean, the reality was, again, we had not contemplated this as being a tech-centric kind of project. Um, so we hadn't actually ramped up our staffing or anything like that to, uh, to embrace that because we were looking at more from a built form, public realm kind of perspective. Um, and then the advent of bringing Sidewalk Labs in and more understanding a bit more of what they were going to propose and the expectation that the public had to have answers early to questions they had um, really required us to bring on the sort of best and brightest talent when it came to our legal expertise on the field. And with Chantel's you know, background, both in terms of her work with governments, as well as with Denton's, it was absolutely vital to bring someone of her, her caliber on board. And we developed such a seamless working relationship in terms of the types of conversations that we would have. And what was wonderful mm -hmm. is we actually engaged Chantel in some of those conversations we were having 
with the public. So in terms of we ran a whole series of civic labs where Chantel was embedded in part of the programming and talking about sort of the considerations and issues and legal frameworks that deal with smart cities, but also listening as a part of our team to every voice that was in that room. Um, we actually needed some assistance in terms of setting up a formal structure for our uh, data um, digital strategy advisory panel, which had, again, uh, a breadth of expertise around that table. And we had Chantel there so that they could always be grounded in the legislative frameworks that they needed to and when they were considering their work to understand the legal implications of the decisions and recommendations that we were making too. So really, we didn't have that kind of expertise in-house. We are very much an urban revitalization organization that is quasi-government. Um, so having someone of Chantal's caliber on staff wouldn't have been something we would have contemplated in the past. And she really became an extension of our team very seamlessly. Christina, I have a question on something that you know you touched on um, in both of your, your comments that really um, is uh, something that I deal with on a very regular basis as a planning lawyer. And I know, um, you know, we, we struggle with, we saw it in the media um, on this project, uh, but, but otherwise uh, in the land use planning or approval context, that, that public engagement, the public consultation piece is something that is, you know, uh, very real to us as um, project um, proponents, uh, council as lawyers, also as you know municipalities whether it's it's a staff or or the politicians the councillors how in your mind what worked in terms of the public engagement how, how did you uh, deal with some of that um can you touch on that again i appreciate i'm putting you on the spot but but wonder if we could talk about that for a minute um so there was actually i would say three takeaways we learned very quickly what didn't work well from a public consultation perspective and that was really um, where it was more of a broadcast message out from sidewalk trying to explain what they were really trying to accomplish in this project and what they were bringing to the table and some of their grand ideas. Where it began to work extremely well is when Waterfront Toronto brought that consultation back into sort of our sphere of comfort and how we deal with the public. So this is something that Waterfront Toronto has has done very well. Um, it's one of our points of pride is actually having that conversation where the public can see their fingerprints on the projects that we were developing all throughout this, whether it's, you know, a wave deck or a building or a park, the public can oftentimes reflect and look back and say, you know, I, I can see where our recommendation has been incorporated. So we brought that same ethos to how we were starting to talk to the public um, with the Sidewalk Labs, Sidewalk Toronto uh, initiative in the, the sort of, I would say, second stage of the conversation with the public. But what we recognized early on is that these digital issues, the digital governance, the privacy, the IP issues, required not just consultation, there was actually a need to educate and inform. Mm -hmm. That isn't typically something that we would have to do as part of our consultation, but because these were new areas for us to explore, there was a need for us to offer opportunities for the public to learn even what we were talking about and how could they actually have a vector in to be a part of that conversation. So we structured what I referred to earlier as these civic labs where we would bring in subject matter experts to talk about these issues, but still make those conversations available to the public and consult on the feedback of what they had heard, what they liked, what they didn't like. But it was all part of that continuum of, of sort of having that conversation on an ongoing basis, but now having to add in that layer of education. Because these smart cities are things that people have been hearing about on the fringe, but had typically been something that either governments or academia 
and tech industry had been talking about, not so much with them, but it was happening to them. So how did we actually make that environment happen where the public was then now a part of that conversation and equipped very well to be a part of that conversation. So we helped to give them the tools to be able to be a part of, of a valid conversation on smart cities. It was fantastic. I mean, the specificity of that project and giving people, if you will, a bit of a lightning rod to attract their concerns, their comments, the things that excited them was unprecedented in terms of this, the scale of ambition that was being talked about and also the counterparty and being able to have a dialogue with a very sophisticated private sector actor was something that a lot of these smart city projects don't have the opportunity to have as, as a, an ingredient in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That I find that really, really interesting. Again, as a planning lawyer, we deal with um, the public and public consultation on a very regular basis. And for those in the development um, area that are joining us today, I, I mean, I think um, that public education component is something that I have seen and struggle with from time to time in terms of whose role is it to do that, to educate, to walk through the issues. So that's really um, a great, refreshing and, and interesting approach that was taken. Um, Chantal, we've covered the sort of um, introduction of uh, Christina identifying the need to have your uh, counsel uh, on the project and, and involving a privacy lawyer. So I wanted to maybe jump back uh, from the piece that we're talking about now in public consultation and ask you, um, Chantel, how did you apply the privacy framework to uh, the Sidewalk Labs project when you got, became involved? What were your first thoughts uh, kind of being pulled into this project? So really from a privacy law point of view, this has raised issues that were entirely unique, peculiar to a smart city. I will raise uh, the very first one that came up was privacy as a matter of social license. So when Christina and I met, it was because Christina had discovered through her interaction with the various stakeholders that the privacy issue was a matter of whether this project would be accepted or not by the population, whether it could go forward or not with support from the population. So that's the very first, very particular thing relating to a smart city project is privacy as a matter of social license. The second one is privacy as a matter of data sovereignty. So um, uh, maybe Christina has mentioned it a moment ago, but uh, the issue came up very quickly within the project that uh, the data, the personal data that would be used through the digital innovations that Sidewalk Labs was bringing up were going to have to remain in Canada, even though no law made that mandatory in that context. But politically, it was the only palatable solution as a matter of Canada's sovereignty over the personal information of its citizens. Another particular characteristic of privacy in the context of a smart city is that of the handling of the personal data use by the city to offer its optimized services through digital technology and the agenda of the private actor who offers the technology and 
want to make it profitable through data monetization. And you cannot do that. So the, the absolutely the, the government, the municipality who chooses for very good reasons to outsource a lot of a smart cities implementation just because they don't have the technology, just because they don't have the resources and because it's scalable, absolutely needs to rein in the private actor to ensure that the personal data is not used for any other purposes than that of the objectives of the, the smart cities. And finally, the last characteristic that is truly, uh, again, peculiar to smart cities was the ubiquitous nature of um, technology. And when we reviewed the 1500 proposal by Sidewalk Labs, it was so clear how the definition of technology to provide a service and to improve the provision of a service versus technology because it was fun to have or need to have was very much blurred. Because once you start using technology, you very easily slip on that slope that takes you to broader and broader use. And you go further and further from what is necessary and justifiable. So that's the other challenge that I found was peculiar to a smart city was that the ubiquitous and autonomous collection of personal information led to the possibility, the risk of excessive collection and possible misuse in a particular way. Thank you, Chantal. And Christina, Chantal, you've both talked about some of the central issues. Could you um, take us through maybe in a more focused way, some central issues that you dealt with and really more so what are the lessons coming out of the um, situation and, and away from this project that we can take to learn from and work towards um, maybe a, a more seamless experience or, or apply to future future projects. Christina, would you like to get us started. Sure. So I think, you know, one of the clear things that we we could have done a bit better and that was happening behind the scenes, but perhaps we should have actually expressed it more publicly was some of the controls that we had put in place in terms of expectations, but also in terms of the obligations for compliance that we had put onto Sidewalk Labs from the very beginning and explaining to the public what that meant and letting them know that they would be protected in this environment of what was being proposed to them and unpacking a little bit more of the approach that we were taking in terms of how we were interacting with our partner. Um, you know, just, you know, for, for example, I, and Chantal, you will attest to the fact that there were some, some statements that Sidewalk would make and they would frame them very differently. The whole notion of urban data, for example, um, we had told them from the beginning, that term is not on, it is not a term that exists within the Canadian legal frameworks. Therefore, you need to actually repackage what you're proposing in a way that actually is compliant and uses the terminology that we would expect within this jurisdiction. That being said, because they were trying to make this approach a bit of a foray into a, a global uh, product line, there was a disconnect there from our expectations and their compliancy with those expectations versus how they chose to communicate. The public may not have actually realized that that was actually the type of conversation that we were having with them. Um, you know, even the notion around the urban data trust, just because something was published in their 1532 page document 
that did not mean that Waterfront Toronto, nor in fact any of its government stakeholders, had agreed to that approach or were supportive of that approach. And you started to see some of that pushback in, in the light between us and them through the interaction with our board chair or in the sort of media stories where you would see that there was two different responses that were coming. And I think it's something that where it comes to these very vital topics like privacy, like intellectual property, you really need to make sure that the public actor is the voice for these projects at all times. And that there is an unwavering commitment to what is important to you as the public actor. So, you know, whether that's around the ethical use of technology, whether it's about the ethical sourcing of technology, whether it's that preservation of privacy, there can't be an opportunity for the project to be called into question of whether or not you are committed to that. It has to be from day one to post implementation, very clear to the public that you are looking out for what is their best interest. Um, Chantal, did you want to build on that? Well, what I really took away and very much going where you're going, uh, Christina, was that for any municipality who wants to embark on a smart city project or smart city as a whole, uh, the takeaways, the, the very first uh, issue to understand is that privacy is an intrinsic risk. I have been trying to think of a smart city service that did not raise privacy issues and I've really had a hard time finding any. Smart meters do raise privacy issues because they collect a very granular level of information of people's electricity use from which you can draw conclusions. Um, a service whereby you have an app that tells you where there is a free parking spot. Uh, Palo Alto has that for many others. Looks very innocuous and it is pretty much innocuous, but it does reveal your comings and goings. Um, San Diego experienced it uh, recently with its smart lights that were really meant to capture traffic for urban planning and then found that the police wanted to have access to that data to then um, manage demonstrations and in fact even uh, prosecute, possibly prosecute uh, the demonstrators. So you see that it is truly intrinsic. So no smart city project cannot go forward, not even in its conception, without asking what are the privacy risks and how do we mitigate them. The second thing that I believe is really totally where Christina went is the power of the private actor. By definition, the private actors are very powerful. These are big technological companies. Therefore, as Christina just said, the public actor must absolutely rein the private actor in and keep it subsidiary, subservient, in fact, to the public actor. And that will be done through procurement agreements. It will be done, in fact, as, as you did, Christina, in Waterfront Toronto, you started with the draft principles that told Sidewalk Labs exactly what the parameters were to even talk 
And then after that, that was translated to the key terms that were very, very granular, telling cyclopaths what they could do and what they could not do. So that has to be an instrument that is key for a smart city to implement in a democratic fashion, meaning remaining the public actor, remaining the lead actor. Can I actually just build on to something Chantal just said, Kat? Um, yeah, so absolutely. You were talking about some of the solutions, and I think that actually that put a little light bulb on about you know the consultation piece and the public perception and the exchange of value that happens within smart cities and that impacts quality of life. And each of these solutions, you know, they, there will be something on the color glossies about what they're promised to do. And then understanding the various perspectives about how that promise is evaluated is actually something that Chantelle and I came across a, a very specific and yet very uh, good example of how different people look at the same type of solution and the types of challenges that municipalities will have to determine whether or not this is something that they want to embrace. So the example that I was thinking about Chantelle was the smart traffic lights and the the monitoring that they were going to have and it sounded fantastic you know you would have uh, whether it was a lidar or a camera that would actually still de-identify the information but somehow identify that a person or object was moving across the street slowly therefore hold the light until the person has safely crossed sounds like a great enhancement to public safety well what we heard quickly was well wait a minute here if I actually walk across the street in a unique way, or I use an assistive device that is unique to me, and there is a certain pattern of behavior that I come and go from work at a certain time, you will then know that in fact, it is me that is crossing the street and therefore how is my privacy being protected? And at the same conversation at the same tables so was through one of our, our, our DSAP meetings that we had had, another person who actually used an assistive device said, you know what, I love that idea, and actually, I would be willing to give you more of my information. If you could, please just tell me where the snow has been cleared from the curb cuts so I can cross the street my first try in my wheelchair. There was that value exchange that, that depending on who you were, the same solution or even an enhanced version of that solution had so much more value that they were happy to give up, whether it's you know their, their, their image or some other type of information that could actually give them what they need to improve their, their quality of life. So it was interesting because you had just a very small sample size, two very different perspectives on how something could be embraced and whether or not the value exchange was appropriate in a smart city context. Chantal, Christina, you know, building on the challenges that Chantal identified for municipalities in considering smart cities initiatives and, and that Christina touched upon as well, uh, what would be your um, specific advice or what do you think municipalities should be doing uh, when considering these initiatives? So who do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I, I think you're both ready to go. So I'm in your hands. So <laughs> I, I saw the mute buttons come off very quickly. Chantal, well, go I'm ahead. Happy to have Christina go first because she really led this project. Go ahead, Christina. Well, and I'm going to tap into a little bit of my past experience as well when I was back in Windsor. And I think, you know, one of the things that we were very strong at doing down in Windsor Essex was making sure that there was sort of a full view of community needs and community uh, opportunities to be able to actually see how technology could enhance various elements of society. So, but we, we identified the need first 
and then started to look at solutions. And we had a lot of the sort of technological restraint in how we were thinking things through. So if we didn't need to actually consider a technological solution, we didn't because we understood the inherent complications that come with any element of technology in a private setting or even in a public setting, perhaps that's even a messier space to talk about. Um, but I think, you know, as you're going through and you're thinking about embarking on a smart city journey or an intelligent community journey, making sure if that's your intent, that you have a team around you with the necessary expertise. And I'm definitely not trying to be too cute here because Chantelle is on the call, but having, having Chantelle at my side was so helpful in terms of having that credible conversation with the public. And we had other folks, as I said, that were a part of that conversation on other issues like the intellectual property issue, but being able to make sure that those were responses that were grounded very well into sort of the realities of legislation, looking at the sort of precedent studies that were done and making sure that those experts are engaged early so they understand the history of the conversation. What was even the rationale of this project? It is extraordinarily hard to bolt people on after, you know, as we continue to add expertise, there was all sorts of trying to understand, well, you know, we've had that conversation that isn't a good fit for the public, or we've had that conversation and sidewalk isn't actually amenable to that. Whereas if you have that team built out as you embark on that journey, it is a much easier step, step forward. And really, as I said, like, I just wanna go back to my first point though, focus on the needs that you're solving for and really define those well so that you can actually understand the full spectrum of how you might want to tackle those and who within your community, what organizations, it may not be your municipality, it might be your healthcare providers, it may be your universities and colleges that you should be partnering with as sort of public sector stewards of an entire smart community approach as opposed to just thinking about it from just a smart city approach as well. Chantal, do you have anything to add? Yeah, th there's really an echo in law of uh, what uh, Christina is saying. So, so Christina started by saying, consider what you actually need. And that is the very first legal question to address. Because a municipality being a government, it can only collect and use personal information as necessary. It has to demonstrate necessity, first and foremost. If it wants to gather other data for something that some people may want, the example that Christina mentioned about persons with a difficulty to be mobile, and I was there, I remember very well, the event when Christina was talking about with this chap saying, I would love to have an app that tells me when these streets are clear and I can go because, because he had such significant mobility issues. But that would be with consent. So that's the very first conceptual challenge, but that is legally mandated. What is needed to provide this municipal service what would be nice to offer? The needed can be collected without consent based on necessity. The second must be collected with consent. The second step is, all right, so we know we need X. Let's take the smart meters because the smart meters have been 
actually examined in before the tribunal as to whether there was a necessity argument that could be made. And the tribunals did accept it because the environmental issues are so pressing that, and there are ecological advantages to smart meters that it was accepted as necessary for the public good. So you, if you do have necessity, then you need to make sure that you do not collect any more personal information that is proportionate towards that necessity, the realization of that objective. And then you need to build in internal compliance measures that make sure you never go astray from that. You also need to have an evaluation in a year. Do we really collect the information we need or do we collect more? Do we really do have privacy compliance? And you need to have external oversight. And that's through transparency. So for example, um, Christina and I are both uh, in great admiration of what has been done in Barcelona. And the key characteristic of the success in Barcelona is citizens engagement, is the transparency with the citizens so that there is first oversight through a data privacy officer that is devoted to the compliance of the smart city measures. But there is also transparency with the public, thus the public being able to hold the smart city accountable for the compliant use of personal data. Chantal, before we move on, uh, for those that aren't following what Barcelona has done, can you tell us in a, in a nutshell what it is that uh, Barcelona has done as, as a municipality and what's impressive about it? So uh, Christina is also, I mean, she's really the expert on that. And, and when I would read about Barcelona, I would turn to Christina and I would say, Christina, what do you think about Barcelona? I mean, is, is everything I read uh, accurate? And, and so she has a lot to say about Barcelona. I will simply say this, Barcelona did make a choice to optimize most of its municipal services through digital technology. It did so with a citizen-centered approach. Therefore, going really from the ground up, what do citizens want? What is the technology that can make it happen? And how do we keep the citizen in control with this very uh, fluid, open interface with the citizen about all that the personal information that the city has about them, they have direct access, they can look at how it is used. And so it really has been able to implement a very wide extent of digital technologies to enhance municipal services while ensuring social license behind it. But I will, I will leave Christina to, to give her expert uh, view on Barcelona. Chatel, I think you actually articulated it very well. And I, I do think that there's a, a couple of underlying factors for that, one of which is very significantly the individuals that were engaged in how Barcelona brought forward their smart city practice and also the culture of Spain in terms of being a very democratic and activist driven culture at the same time to make sure there's this check and balance on mm -hmm. on the governance issues but also on the human rights issues and i don't think it's accidental that they were one of the founding signing sort of partners on on the human rights lens around smart cities as well 
And, you know, that was something that we very closely followed. Uh, and there were so many underlying issues, but Barcelona, the other interesting piece is when you go there, you know, I went there and I wanted to experience what it was like to be in a great smart city. And what I realized is that it was seamless. It was invisible. You didn't actually feel like there was an imposition. It was true mm -hmm. to its culture. You didn't lose any of that unique heritage experience as well. So they've done a very good job in integrating their smart city in a very seamless way. I mean, transit was, was you know, practically perfect when we went there, or maybe I was just lucky, um, but things like their, their pneumatic waste and how they were managing that kind of element of it too, was all embedded even in the heritage districts, but you didn't even realize it was there. They've done such a great job in building it into who Barcelona is as a city that it, it has become part of their identity without it becoming their only identity, which is important for a community. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I've traveled there as well. Um, Chantal, is, before we get into parting tips and takeaways, we started off by um, reviewing the uh, Denton's um, Smart Cities uh, definition. Um, and I thought, you know, I'd like your thoughts on it uh, to see if you have anything to add, but also based on what you and Christina just covered, it might be a good kind of segue or, or closing out of let's revisit that definition and have your, your thoughts on it. So just to remind everyone, um, we've defined a smart city as a, um, as a smart city modernizes digital, physical and social infrastructure and integrates all essential services for the benefits of its citizens by harnessing advances in sustainable technology to make delivery of these services more efficient useful, innovative, and equitable. Um, Chantal, what are your thoughts on the definition and uh, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, uh, so you will see that I have a narrow uh, definition and, and I will explain why I have, I have a reason. Uh, and by the way, if I can make uh, a pitch, my losing internet connection is because I am in the Laurentians and I believe that that is an illustration how we really need to make sure Absolutely. that we continue to connect all of Canada, however rural uh, we are. Go, going back to my definition of a uh, digital city, there are two definitions. One is metaphorical. So smart city as a better city because it really optimizes all of the potential of um, digital solutions, but also making it sustainable and so on and so forth. Because I'm a privacy lawyer and therefore approach smart cities very much from the issue of the collection and analysis and use of personal data through digital, which is the defining element because that is what makes the use and collection of personal information so much greater and therefore heightens the privacy risk so much more, is very much literal. In French, for example, if you look at the documents of the Commission Nationale d'Information et Liberté, which is the counterpart to the Office of the Privacy Commission of Canada in France, the term used is ville numérique which means digital cities. They don't say smart cities, they say digital cities. And I like to use that definition that a smart city is a digital city. And the reason I hold to that definition for my uh, lens 
is because it keeps me focused on the privacy risk, on the exact privacy risk of a smart city, which is the exponential use of personal data within municipal services and therefore the imperative to build safeguards to keep it within what is justifiable in democratic society because municipalities are first and foremost democratic governments. Thank you, Chantal. Um, in closing us up today, do you have any other uh, parting tips, Christina or Chantal, any take takeaways that you'd like to leave the audience with based on your experience? I have two. Um, one is basically a call to action and the other is just a little bit of advice. So, you know, in the process of having this relationship with Sidewalk Labs and trying to think through what we were going to do for the Keyside site, one of the things I was very intentional about was bringing in the critical voices. You never know where the wisdom is going to be found. And oftentimes those critical voices have tremendous knowledge of different ways of looking at things. So whether it was through the digital strategy advisory panel or listening to other voices like Jim Mosley, we made sure that we were bringing those voices to the table and trying to best understand what issues that they had and how could we actually address those proactively before embarking on what could have been a very exciting project. The second thing I really think that's really important to understand is Canada's leadership in this space. So this goes back to 1999 and the Connecting Canadians program. And I don't know if any of your attendees were actually involved with projects that go all the way back there, but you know, it's possible, yeah. There, there were a number of great projects that were starting to emerge in this space that uh, are still very valid today. But Canada was way ahead of the curve on this. And we have an opportunity to stay ahead of the curve now in terms of how we think about smart cities. How do we actually develop them in a very ethical and responsible way that looks at sort of the whole fundamental human rights issues as well, that preserves privacy, that actually goes forward and creates economic opportunity for Canada. And so I would say, don't be shy about this, but be clear with how you're communicating with your citizens, be sure to understand the concerns and to make sure that you will retain that effective control as the public actor, because it's absolutely vital that you have that relationship with your citizens. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Christina. Chantal, do you have anything to add? Yeah, what I took away was the emotional, sensitive nature of the concern for privacy protection within any smart city initiatives. I was uh, really taken by the uh, concern, the instinctual concern, in fact, worry that uh, the implementation of the digital technology caused in relation to what if you lose my information through a breach? What if it is accessed by police forces when in fact it was collected for another reason? It was just so sensitive that it can politically derail a project if the privacy issue is not addressed right at the beginning. Thank you, Chantal, and um, thank you both for this captivating and interesting hour. I've had the privilege of speaking with you 
on smart cities and smart cities issues a few times now and your passion in the space is unmatched. I cannot express how much we appreciate you sharing your time with us today. And thank you also to the audience for joining us today. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take and refrain from taking action based on its contents. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Speakers from this podcast episode and any other professional in our group will be pleased to speak with you on today's topic or any other topic related to smart cities. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our Smart Cities Chat podcast series.